Welcome back, lovely campers. That's Caitlin. And that's Genevieve. And you're past the point of no return. Is that like Hunchback? <laughs> that is the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> oh, was which it for you me? haven't seen. Oh, I just had to put that in there because I was feeling Broadway-y. But now that we're here and you have showed up ready to hear about horrible things, you might find the murder case we have for you today pretty interesting. And because Caitlin and I are in our family vacation season, and A, we do not want to sloppily rush researching and writing a case just to get it out because, you know, we're perfectionists, and B, we still want to make sure you're getting your weekly crimey content, we have decided to do again what we did last week and we ended up enjoying even more than we thought we would, which is what we like to call a blind case read, where we essentially take turns making our way through an entire non-fiction true crime story that neither of us are familiar with, and we allow ourselves to be plunged into the story in real time with our listeners. And today, we'll be taking you through an article written by Niall Capello for the 118th issue of Atavist Magazine titled, The Girl in the Picture. And like before, up front, all we're going to tell you is what we know ourselves from the header of the article, which reads as follows, quote, a sketch artist and a grieving mother set out to solve a cold case. And the more they dug, the more terrifying the truth became. Lights out, campers. For most residents of Holland, Michigan, there was nothing remarkable about March 11, 1989, a Saturday. Frost on the ladders of the city's water towers thawed in the sun. Spring was just over a week away. Mothers poured milk over cereal for kids watching back-to-back episodes of their favorite cartoons. Fathers who worked weekends drove pickup trucks to industrial jobs at local automotive and concrete companies. But all was not well in the house on the corner of Lincoln Road and 52nd Street. It belonged to Dennis and Brenda Bowman, a married couple with two children. For the Bowmans, March 11th marked the last time They saw their 14-year-old daughter, Andrea, alive. Dennis was the one who contacted the police. He told them that he'd come home from his job as a wood machinist to find Andrea missing, along with some of her belongings and $100 from his dresser. Dennis described Andrea, whom he and Brenda had adopted when she was an infant, as a troubled teenager who frequently fought with her mother and had run away to a friend's house once before. Dennis agreed to call around to the homes of the kids Andrea knew to find out if anyone had seen her, but his wife soon took over as the family's point of contact. It was Brenda who called the police regularly, and Brenda who corrected the amount of cash missing from her husband's dresser to $150. That was enough for the police to issue a warrant for Andrea's arrest for larceny. The warrant listed Dennis as the victim of his daughter's alleged crime. 
That's uh, one way to get your child home, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. With no foul play suspected, the police labeled Andrea a runaway and passed her case along to the Youth Services Bureau. Few people who knew the Bowmans questioned the official narrative. Over the years, there had been whispers about the family. Once, when Andrea was in middle school, she boarded the school bus bleeding from her wrist. Some kids gossiped about a suicide attempt, but others said Andrea had cut herself trying to get back into her house after her parents locked her out. There were rumors that Dennis, a former Navy reservist with reddish-brown hair, a goatee, and wire-rimmed glasses, and Brenda, a portly woman with curled bangs who'd once worked at the jewelry counter at Meyer Department Store, abused Andrea. But back then, what happened behind closed doors was considered family business. Fifteen months before Andrea disappeared, Brenda gave birth to a daughter, Vanessa. Andrea went from being an only child to more than a big sister. She was a third parent to the chubby, red-headed baby. While other kids her age went to after-school clubs and Friday night football games, Andrea stayed home changing diapers and cleaning bottles. She kept a photo of her sister in a school folder where other teens might stash a magazine cutout or a Polaroid of their crush. Oh, that's really that sweet. sweet. <laughs> when she wasn't with Vanessa, Andrea was anxious about the baby's well-being. Oh. Many people in Holland assumed that Andrea had gotten so fed up with her home life that she finally split. Maybe she'd gone looking for her birth mother. People heard that she'd hitched a ride at a local truck stop, had left town with an older boy, or was pregnant. Wow. So the rumor mill was a churning. There's really nothing for us to guess at now yeah. because they've already done that. All I needed to hear was the part about her caring mm -hmm. so much about that baby sister. That oh. is, her heart was golden. Because even as a 27-year-old... <laughs> And the child is mine, and I love him so much. The folder in your school, or the picture in your school folder is Jensen Ackles. 100%. 100%. With maybe Camden, like, tucked behind yeah, He it. can be behind. He can be on the flip side. He's there. Jensen Ackles just in the front. Mm, front and center. That's understandable. Oh, yeah. Brenda reported a series of tips in the weeks and months following her daughter's disappearance, all of which seemed to confirm that Andrea had run away. At the end of March, Brenda claimed Andrea had been spotted at a 7-Eleven. In mid-April, Brenda said she received an anonymous call from someone claiming that police were looking for the teenager in the right area, but on the wrong street, whatever that meant. In June, she reported a sighting at a local property where Andrea had supposedly been hanging out with a group of young men. And in October, Brenda said a friend had seen Andrea pregnant and with dyed hair in a line at Meyer. Police investigated, but found nothing. <gasps> Bitch. What? Can I can I jump to conclusions? Is that okay? Mm, yeah, because we don't know is anything it, about this case. Is she pregnant by her dad? Oh. And like ran, a, you, you know what I mean? Are you trying to call it before we uh. even get to the end? Well, that's what I'm just... If you're I'm right, sorry. I'm going to be like, what? I'm sorry. But neither of us know anything at all about this case, so you can totally make assumptions but oh shit <laughs> i mean 
you did go immediately to the absolute worst, darkest thing of our last flight, and we were like, air did compressor. he get an air compressor shoved up his butt? <laughs> <laughs> I've so, been sick. I've mellowed out. She was adopted. Mm-hmm. Crazier things have happened. That is not the worst thing we've ever heard of happening, even though it's fucking terrible. So we'll see if you're right. <laughs> and wasn't Meyer, it just says somebody saw her in a line at Meyer. That mm-hmm. was where her adopted mom worked, they said. Yes. Okay. Previously worked. Okay. Andrea's classmates went to prom and graduated, then got jobs or headed to college. Eventually, they married and had children of their own. But Andrea remained forever 14. A single photograph formed most people's memory of her. 14. That is so young. Baby. Oh, man. It was given to police when she first vanished. In it, Andrea is sitting against a blue studio backdrop and looking just off camera, with her green eyes cast hopefully upward and pieces of her dark, shaggy hair hanging over her forehead. Her smile is charmingly off-balanced. She looks suspended between adolescence and adulthood. And I'm just going to say right here, 14, that is a baby. And I don't really like it when things like use terminology that mature Mm -hmm. children like this. 14 That is so much of a child to me that you need to be tucked in at night. Like there is nothing adult. Webkins. Yeah, I, I, at fourteen, and I was more innocent than most. But like I didn't know anything about anything at that age. Like really sexual or just about life or anything. I was so innocent and naive. And even if you have some head knowledge then at that age that is you're still a baby you are a baby 14 years is nothing yeah oh my gosh oh so she wasn't suspended between adolescence and Mm -mm. adulthood she was a child a child forced into adulthood yeah taking care of her baby sister yes yes very much so Photos of missing children were often printed on the sides of milk cartons or on flyers taped to the top of pizza delivery boxes. Never heard that one. Oh, yeah, the pizza delivery Mm -hmm. one? Me neither. I knew about the milk carton Mm -hmm. one, though, because that's kind of cliche, but interesting. Andrea's picture wound up somewhere else. In 1993, the band Soul Asylum debuted a music video for its song, Runaway Train, Featuring the images and names of missing kids across America. Oh my gosh. Oh. Oh. I want to go listen to that song after this. Yes, we can. Hopefully we can find that video and link it in the show notes because I definitely want to watch it now. The video was a huge hit with several versions airing on MTV and VH1. In the one that played in Michigan, Andrea's photo appears just after the two minute mark. Hmm. Reflecting on the video 20 years after its release, director Tony Kay claimed that more than two dozen missing children were found because of the video, but Andrea Bowman wasn't one of them. Ugh. 
It's amazing it brought awareness. That is know? amazing. Harry Styles, Taylor Swift, what are y'all doing? Make those music videos. Let's raise some awareness. You know, in five seconds, it would make global reach. Because but like to put it in a music video in the, what is this, like early 90s, yeah. late 80s, yeah. on VH1 and MTV, mm-hmm. that's huge. Yeah, that was the biggest, most popular pop culture platform at the time, for sure. So that was really smart. That's awesome. Yeah. And that it actually led to stuff. Mm-hmm. We'll have to do some more looking into that because I had actually never heard of that before. Mm -mm. And when that was happening, we really wouldn't have been into that because we were, I mean, I was born in 1991. You were, you were a star. You weren't even thought of yet. (laughs) I think my dad was with another woman at that point. So I was not on the forefront of anyone's brain. Kate then was held in the palm of the Lord's hand. Okay. Thank God you went with that analogy. (laughs) You hadn't come down to earth yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's super cool. Ooh. Carl Koppelman never expected to solve mysteries. He worked as an accountant until 2009 when his mother's health began to decline. At 46, Koppelman became a full-time caregiver, and his days, once filled with reviews of spreadsheets and financial statements, now revolved around driving to doctor's appointments and administering medications. When he wasn't tending to his mother, Koppelman was online exploring message boards, news sites, and social media. At the time, the story dominating headlines and bordering on popular obsession was the return of J.C. Dugard. In 1991, Dugard had been kidnapped while walking to a bus stop near her home south of Lake Tahoe, California. The blonde, freckled 11-year-old was the subject of a nationwide search, but eventually the case went cold. Then, on August 26, 2009, Dugard reappeared. For 18 years, convicted sex offender Philip Garrido and his wife Nancy, I'm sorry, I should say Philip fucking shitbag Garrido and his wife fucking shitbag Nancy, who played dumb but knew exactly what was going on, had held her captive at their home in the town of Antioch, more than 150 miles from where they'd kidnapped her. Dugard had given birth to two of Garrido's daughters, who were now 11 and 15. To the embarrassment of local authorities, parole officers had visited the Garrido's home several times during the years Dugard was missing. They'd failed to check the backyard, where the young woman was kept in a network of tents, lean-tos, and sheds. Okay, I need to interject here because I have read her autobiography, which is incredible. Everyone needs to go read it. It is called A Stolen Life, and she is a fucking badass. She is incredible. But what I am enraged about in this case is that the reason why parole officers showed up at that house is because neighbors were constantly telling police there is something going on there. Because this man And I could be wrong, but it's been a while since I've read the memoir, but I believe that this man was a registered sex offender. He, there's a reason why parole officers were showing up there. And it was because neighbors saw 
young women milling about the place because when they had her for so long, they would like take her out and her daughters out on outings. And the neighbors were like, what the fuck is going on over there? He's not supposed to have young women anywhere near him. And if you've seen pictures of that backyard, oh, it is, it's a fucking mess. It's it, a circus yeah, of shit. Yeah, it looks like a crazy person's brain. So it how is, did you not search that? Yeah, I. it is unreal. Like, that is a failure on top of failings that are horrifying. That could have been <sighs> fixed years before they were. And... God, like, J.C. Dugard, you are amazing. Anywho, on that tangent, mm-hmm. that case will always get me riled up yeah, because of a... how long her 18 years survival had to be endured when it should have been cut off way, way sooner. Anywho's. Koppelman's interest in the Dugard case led him to web sleuths a forum where crime hobbyists and armchair detectives connect and collaborate on unsolved cases. Koppelman gravitated to posts about cold cases, the ones least likely to ever be solved. Until recently, Dugards had been one of them. How many more would benefit from fresh eyes and a little persistence? Koppelman spent countless hours scrolling through the national database of missing persons and unidentified bodies, known as, this is a little odd, but it's capital N-A-M, capital U-S. So I'm going to say NAMAS. There's overlap between the two main parts of the database, the disappeared and the deceased. The trick is finding it. During late nights at his computer in a dimly lit corner of his mother's suburban home in El Segundo, California, Koppelman would try to match the characteristics of people who had gone missing with those of the unidentified dead. Finding a likeness could be enough to generate a tip for law enforcement. Fuck, what a way to spend your free time. And now we have TikTok and Instagram Reels. Now we have TikTok and and I'm on my 500th time through Gilmore Girls and yeah. Here's Koppelman. <laughs> Getting shit done. All <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, right. <laughs> Koppelman, you can be on the team Let the Women Do the Work mm-hmm, for this mm-hmm. one. You can be a team woman. Here. We pick you. <laughs> when Koppelman noticed that the age and condition of some bodies might make it difficult for loved ones to recognize them, it sparked an idea. Koppelman liked to draw portraits for fun, and he was pretty good at it. He also had a CD-ROM, or is it CD-ROM? My sweet summer child. It is a CD-ROM. Thank you. (laughs) Felt my age on that one. Mm, (laughs) CD-ROM of the image editing software Corel Draw, which someone had given to him as a gift. One day, with his mother napping in the next room. (laughs) I should have left. That was just such a great visual. (laughs) She's just like in a house coat with... Her hair and curlers in a recliner with like 14 pillows. I hope. I did in home health care. That's basically (laughs) what it was like. Yep. One titty almost hanging out. Um, Yeah. That's some good sleeping when one titty's hanging out. It really is. Not out the fucking arm. Exactly. Gravity has taken its course. It was not a good night's sleep if at least one did not come out. Mm Mm-hmm. Or you can just sleep naked. That's true. That's true. That's a good point. 
Koppelman installed the program on his computer. It was his first step toward becoming a forensic sketch artist. That's so cool. That is amazing. He started creating lifelike renderings of Jane and John Doe's based on photos taken post-mortem. He used Corel Draw to open eyes, fill in sunken cheeks, and give faces more dynamic expressions. In complicated cases where bodies had decomposed, he recreated facial structures. The goal was to make the dead more recognizable to loved ones searching for them and to police trying to identify them. Once he finished a rendering, Koppelman sent it to Namus, and the database would sometimes publish it. He also posted his work on web sleuths so other armchair detectives could use it in their own identification efforts. Eventually, Koppelman began working with police departments and the DNA Doe Project, which identifies human remains through genetic testing and and genealogical research. You got it. Thank you. (laughs) Glad to help law enforcement generate leads and, in some instances, put a name to a face, Koppelman was almost always an unpaid volunteer. And the fact that he kept going just makes him... mm. Yeah, that is truly amazing. He's a good one. His renderings were instrumental in solving several cold cases, including the identification of the Caldonia Callie Jane Doe, Tammy Joe Alexander, in 2015. Wow. Dang. And this is, like, that's what's crazy. I'm, in my head... I'm thinking this is all happening in the 90s. Yeah. And this is happening. That's right after I graduated high school. Yep. So it was like. Not that long ago, folks. She went missing. They looked really hard for like a year. And then in one sentence, you just read. And then 20 years went by. And that's amazing that somebody just on their computer all their mom was napping with her titty out in the next room, was like, I am going to do something about this. And in so many of these cases, we see that's what it takes because law enforcement is overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. It isn't necessarily that they just don't give a shit because we know there are many law enforcement who are good people. Yeah. Well, and like you said, just a fresh pair of eyes. Yeah, just- exactly. But before all that in 2009, when he was just starting out as an amateur sleuth, Koppelman got interested in the case of the Racine County Jane Doe. When she was found near the edge of a Wisconsin cornfield in 1999, the young woman had only been dead about 12 hours, but rain had washed away any evidence that might have been useful to investigators. It seemed likely that the young woman had been murdered elsewhere and dumped. An autopsy determined that she may have been cognitively disabled and that she had suffered long-term abuse and neglect. She had broken bones and a cauliflower ear, and her body showed signs of sexual assault. More than 50 people from the farming community where she was found attended her funeral, but no one knew her name or what had happened to her. Her gravestone read, gone, but not forgotten. A hope more than a description. Koppelman read everything he could find about the Racine County Jane Doe, combing through news articles and social media. He learned that she had hazel green eyes, two piercings in each ear, and short reddish brown hair. 
She was five foot eight and 120 pounds and estimated to be between 18 and 30 years old. She was found wearing a men's gray and silver Western style shirt embroidered with red flowers, a design the manufacturer told police from the mid 1980s. On Namus, Koppelman plugged in some general search criteria, gender, age, location, and clicked through the results for missing persons. With each one, Koppelman asked himself, could this be her? In most cases, the answer was a clear no. The age did not match, or the location made no sense. But one entry gave Koppelman pause. Andrea Bowman. Andrea and the Racine County Jane Doe shared physical characteristics and their ages aligned. Andrea would have been 25 in 1999 when the Jane Doe was killed. Holland, where Andrea disappeared, sits directly across Lake Michigan from where the Jane Doe was found. It's just four hours by car from one location to the other, tracing the lake's southern shoreline and passing through Chicago. To test the possible identification, Koppelman created a composite image superimposing Andrea's photo with one from the Jane Doe autopsy. He marked the similarities in red. Koppelman took his theory to law enforcement, who found it compelling enough to investigate. That's pretty damn impressive Mm -hmm. because you know of all of the tips that they constantly get for everything, and I'm sure because now... We live in a day and age where everybody's an armchair detective yeah. that he had to be really good at what he did for them to be like, oh, shit, maybe well, this is something. Even for him to comb through everything and be like, no, that's, eh, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't. Yeah. This one? Yeah. Yeah. He really has a, in my mind, that type of eye that an mm-hmm. artist has for oh, yeah. truly f- like the minutia details of the face and like muscular and skeletal structure that the average person just doesn't. And that really is what you have to have to be able to do what he did. And so that's really amazing that he just went from his office job to that. It makes you wonder if he began his career in that where he could have ended up because it said he started doing that when he was 46. So damn but it also goes to show you that it is never too late to Mm -hmm. completely change the course of your career passion life etc so good for you Koppelman please don't turn out to have be a piece of shit in 2023 and have said anything bad because we're just singing his praises (laughs) and then somebody's gonna comment like you know what he did (laughs) what he said on twitter But for now, in the context of this article, we are team compliment. To determine whether the Jane Doe was Andrea, police would need to compare DNA from the body with that of someone in Andrea's family. Because Andrea was adopted, authorities had to track down her birth mother. Koppelman knew that could take a while or that it might never happen, forcing investigators to find other avenues for identification. As the police did their part, Koppelman kept poking around online, learning what he could about Andrea. One day at the end of 2012, he came across a classmates.com page for Andrea. The premium kind you have to pay to keep active in order to connect directly with former school acquaintances. Was this Andrea alive and well and trying to find old friends? 
And if it wasn't her, who was it? Interesting. Kathy Turkanian's life story seems ripped from the plot of a made-for-TV movie. Her mother, Shirley, had six children with three men. Turkanian's stepfather was in the Navy, and the family moved seven times before she started the seventh grade. Holy shit. Dang. Wow. Is that what we would call, Caitlin, a military brat? Absolutely. <laughs> Man. Ooh. The stepfather was deployed for long stretches, and Turkanian's mother was overwhelmed by the demands of taking care of so many kids, including one who had epilepsy. With no one looking after her, Turkanian was molested at the age of 10 by the husband of one of her mother's friends, then raped at 12 by a teenager. Fuck. Men are... Honestly, fuck Shirley. Jeez. She knew she had to escape her existence, so she started to make a plan. Hmm. In 1972, Turkanian left Virginia, where her family was living at the time, with no clothes except for what she was wearing and without saying goodbye. Peace out, bitches. Mm -hmm. She was 14 and had no money. She hitchhiked to Tennessee, where she met up with a friend in Memphis, and then went to the city's Greyhound bus station. She didn't have a destination in mind, but noticed another traveler wearing colorful beads who mentioned a party down in New Orleans <laughs> called Mardi Gras. Oh, just a, that little party, the you know. Hell. It's word just of mouth. <laughs> just word of mouth only. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, Turkanian arrived in the Big Easy, where jazz music reverberated through the French Quarter, and people laughed and sang jubilantly in the streets. In the midst of the counterculture movement of the 1970s, Turkanian wasn't the only runaway teen in New Orleans. She met a network of young people who helped each other out, offering a place to crash, a job, and tips and tricks for staying off the street. Through the group, she met Randy Badger, a 19-year-old who'd recently hitchhiked to Louisiana from Los Angeles. All I Damn. see is Badger from Breaking Bad. That's all I'm going to see. <laughs> now that you said that, that's all I'm going to see too. Also, is that like the opposite ends of the United States? LA to Louisiana. That's pretty damn far. Halfway. Halfway, is it? As if I could do it. That shows it's how nothing. dumb I am. Before long, they found a place to stay and were doing everything together. They even got joint work at a circus sideshow. And for the first time, Turkanian was living her life how she wanted to. In December 1972, Turkanian and Badger traveled to South Carolina, where it was legal for a minor to get married if they had parental permission. Oh, God. Turkanian's parents gave it gladly. In fact, they insisted on the union. Shirley didn't want to be the person police called if her daughter was in trouble. Mother of the Shirley. fucking year. Gosh. Turkanian's stepfather signed the necessary paperwork. God. Sounds like she was well shot of them. The couple were married less than a year when Turkanian found out she was pregnant. It was unexpected news, but also another step toward independence. 
Turkanian wanted to do better by her baby than her mother had done by her. On June 23, 1974, Turkanian gave birth to a healthy daughter. She named her Alexis after the actress Alexis Smith. Her relationship with Badger soon went downhill. While Turkanian balanced work with caring for Alexis, her husband seemed more interested in partying with friends, including other women. Uh-uh. The final straw came when Alexis was five months old. Turkanian returned home from a shift to find Badger kissing another woman on the couch, while Alexis was alone in the back room, crying without a diaper on. R.I.P. Badger. A fucker would have been dragged out by the sack. Wow. The audacity. Mm. Wow. (sighs) Turkanian decided to leave, but she had to think about Alexis too. What would be best for her daughter? Turkanian resigned herself to what she considered her only option. She went home to Virginia. During the five-day Greyhound ride, Alexis barely cried. Oh. Passengers complimented Turkanian, welcome encouragement for the now single teen mom. But whatever confidence Turkanian felt vanished when she arrived in Norfolk and her mother picked her up at the station. Shirley didn't throw her arms around her daughter or plant kisses on Alexis's plump cheeks. Instead, she looked the pair up and down and puckered her face in judgment. My heart is hurting right now and my face is hot with anger I get so much crap from like Sam and Josh will give us crap about getting worked up over things that happened years ago that don't like we don't have a connection to personally but when I read stuff like this I feel it on a personal level I, care for them like exactly first I, off bitch you 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 did the tango with three men had six kids from that yeah. equation and you just decide you don't want yeah. to parent them right and if you want to sleep with that many men and have yeah, that I'm, many I kids that's great that. but then you have a responsibility to those kids to not be a piece of shit and you allowed your daughter to yeah. be raped By your friend's husband. You allowed your daughter to leave your house at 14. You're a piece of shit. And even then, we still, like, that girl, because she is still a little girl, she still needed her mother. There was still something about Shirley that made her be like, I need my mom. I have a baby now myself. And then for her to give her that reaction, oh my being terrible to their daughter. I mean, mothers being terrible to their kids. It, I don't it, like I think like it sucks that mothers and dads a being stigma yeah. where it's like okay, the dad's a piece of shit. Okay, yeah. well that's expected. Like right. that's yeah. but the mother being the piece of shit in the story yeah. like that's how we get up in these stories. It's yep. always the mother. Yeah. And I think we have such a strong opinion because we are mothers well, yeah. and there is that definite like social conditioning and it's terrible that mm-hmm. you just ex- almost expect that oh well yeah the dad was a piece of shit and that's absolutely terrible but your mother is the person that 
grows you, that nurtures your life. And then to give birth to something that you're so intimately connected with and then to look at it and be like, ew. That is, if you are that way, give your child to someone who will love it. Like, sever yourself from that situation and let your child be loved or love them yourself. Like, for fuck's sake, that is... That's how shitty humans... Again, hurt people hurt people and it's just a vicious cycle and it's... Ugh. Man. I do not have a whole lot of uh, empathy for Shirley in this moment. Nah. Right now she's like... She looks like... um, professor umbridge mm, That's yes what, like, I'm just like, Ugh. yeah <sighs> it turned out that shirley had been diagnosed with breast cancer and given just five years to live baby girl wow. this ain't the way to be doing it Ugh. dracanian quickly realized that her mother expected her to care for her siblings and while shirley never said it outright it was clear she didn't think Turkanian should have a child of her own. Well, yeah, obviously, because her because her attention would now be diverted from um, Shirley's Your children. Your little yeah. crotch goblins. God, like a fucking bunny factory. <laughs> Gosh, one day casually, Shirley said, "You ran out of formula. How are you going to take care of this kid?" A seed was planted, <sighs> and from it, Turkanian's doubt grew. She increasingly felt like she couldn't give Alexis the life her daughter deserved. God, fuck this woman. Turkanian agreed to give her baby up for adoption. Shirley handled the logistics, assuring Turkanian that Alexis would be taken in by a good family through Catholic charities. Fuck. God. Shortly, yeah, historically we know how delightful the Catholic Church has been with kids. Mm. Shortly after the adoption was finalized, Turkanian left home again. Mm. And this time, the teenager hoped things would be different. And that's how you be a parent. You do what's best for your child. Yes. Turkanian, my heart is just breaking for her. Mm. Turkanian eventually went to nursing school and met her current husband. They never started a family of their own. For more than 30 years, she didn't have any idea what had become of her daughter. Tucanian, with blonde hair and a confident smile, sometimes wondered if Alexis looked like her. She hoped her daughter was happy and that Alexis's adoptive parents knew how lucky they were. Oh. Oh. You, it's just very apparent to me that she deeply loved oh, her daughter absolutely. so much. I mean, oh. Then... In April 2010, a letter arrived at Turkanian's home in Massachusetts that upended her life. It was from a social worker who explained that Alexis had disappeared from her adoptive home in Michigan in 1989. Police were investigating a new lead in the case that Alexis might be a Jane Doe found in Wisconsin, a dead girl. Police needed a sample of Turkanian's DNA to know for sure. Oh, oh my God. My stomach just dropped for her. Oh. Turkanian was perplexed by how little information the letter provided. 
It didn't include Alexis's adoptive name or the city where she'd lived. Nor did it offer contact information for police or any details about Alexis's disappearance when she was 14, the same age Turkanian had been when she ran away from home. Wow. Turkanian was willing to share her DNA, but she wanted to know more about what happened to her daughter. She searched online for information about missing girls in Michigan. It didn't take long to find one from the town of Holland, whose birthday and physical description matched Alexis's. When she saw the girl's school photo, Turkanian thought Andrea Bowman could be her daughter. Eventually, Turkanian would learn that, as a baby, Alexis had wound up in the hands of Virginia's Department of Social Services. Someone, possibly Shirley, had reported that Alexis was born with fetal... Oh, my gosh. Oh, God. Was born with fetal alcohol syndrome and that Turkanian had taken LSD during the pregnancy. I hope this bitch is being... Is on a fucking, like... Rack in hell. roast. God. Spinning down in hell. Ugh. I hope hell is, like, real (laughs) for this bitch. Yes. We hope it is real and that there are many levels and that she's at one of the lower ones. Because, God. Fucking hell. Both lies, Turkanian insisted. The life she'd imagined Alexis would have crumbled in her mind. Desperate to know the truth, Turkanian set up a Facebook page about Andrea's disappearance, as well as a classmates.com account in Andrea's name. She was hoping to connect with her daughter's old friends. Instead, she found Carl Koppelman. Turkanian and Koppelman began exchanging messages, which led to a series of long phone conversations. Turkanian also met other online sleuths interested in Andrea's case, including a woman in New Jersey named Sue Kovacs, who helped Turkanian revamp the Find Andrea Facebook page and expand its reach. Everyone waited for the results of Turkanian's DNA test to see if there was a match with the Racine County Jane Doe. But for the people invested in this case, determining whether Andrea's body had been found was just one piece of the puzzle. If Andrea was indeed dead, how had it happened? If she'd been killed, who was responsible? Turkanian got in touch with a retired Michigan detective familiar with Andrea's case, a man named Pat O'Reilly. His frankness surprised her. Quote, they botched this case from the beginning, unquote. Turkanian remembered him saying, O'Reilly didn't respond to an interview request. According to O'Reilly, the person Turkanian needed to be looking at was Andrea's adoptive father, Dennis Bowman. Bitch, you saw it It was the description of of his, like, the round glasses, his fucking goatee. Yeah. Round glasses and goatee. New. On a sunny morning in May 1980, a 19-year-old woman was riding her bike north of Holland, Michigan, when a motorcyclist forced her off the road. The man told her to get off her bike and walk into the woods. The young woman didn't move. All she needed was a moment. To think, to distract him, to do something. The man pulled out a gun, fired a shot past her, and repeated the orders. Still, she didn't budge. The man fired the gun again, 
this time at the ground near her feet. He said he would shoot her next. Just then, a car drove by, and the motorcyclist turned his head at the noise. The young woman took the opportunity to pedal away as fast as she could. The man didn't shoot or give chase, and she was able to flag down someone in a pickup truck who drove her home. Her parents called the police, and the young woman provided a description of the suspect. A white male with tinted glasses and a blue helmet. His motorcycle, she said, had a black top case mounted on the back. By the end of the day, the police had detained a suspect. The young woman took one look at him and confirmed that he was the man who tried to attack her. It was Dennis Bowman, who by then was already a husband and father. At the time, Andrea was almost six years old. Dennis was convicted of assault with intent to commit criminal sexual conduct and sentenced to five to ten years in prison. He was referred for psychological counseling, and a judge determined that he would likely pose a danger to women if he went free. You think? (laughs) Still, Dennis served the minimum sentence. Brenda stood by her husband then, and she did so again in 1998. One day that year, a state trooper in Door, Michigan, responded to an alarm at the mobile home of 28-year-old Vicki Vanden Brink. She'd reported so many break-ins that the sheriff's department had installed a security system. Jesus Ooh. Christ. Can I get a free safe? Simply account? safe? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Simply safe when a sponsor. That is terrifying good, I mean, but good for them for like doing something yeah absolutely um when the trooper arrived at the scene he found dennis bowman walking away from the back door the bowmans had moved to hamilton a town nestled between holland and door in 1989 i hope i'm saying that right i think it's door i think that's right door yeah ours aren't my strong suit <laughs> shortly after andrea's disappearance and Dennis told the officer that he was temporarily staying with Vanden Brink, who was a former co-worker of his. He was let go, but when authorities got in touch with Vanden Brink, who wasn't home when the alarm went off, she said Dennis was lying. No shit. Yeah. Dennis then changed his story, telling law enforcement that he'd entered the trailer to use the bathroom. He'd been there at least once before, he claimed, when his daughter Vanessa wanted to sell Girl Scout cookies to Vanden Brink. Skeptical, the police obtained Dennis's permission to search his property. In the loft of an outbuilding, they found a black duffel bag containing lingerie that was later identified as Vanden Brink's, as well as a short-barreled shotgun, a black sweatshirt, and a mask. Holy fuck. So a murder duffel bag. So if I go up to anybody's house trying to solicit something, I can then go into their house to the bathroom. Yeah, That's a good I think alibi. that sounds right. Specifically Girl Scout cookies. You then get a free pass for life to just walk in and use their bathroom. Interesting. And take their lingerie. Oh. I think I have a box in the freezer I can try to pawn off. Oh, God. (sighs) Dennis pled guilty to one count of breaking and entering. 
His sentencing memo, written by his attorney, doesn't mention his 1980 conviction or the prior break-ins that Vandenbrink had reported, which police believed Dennis was responsible for. Dennis's lawyer presented letters written on his client's behalf by various people. The counselor who ran Dennis's sex offender group treatment program, the principal of Vanessa's elementary school, Along with them, Dennis's boss and a congregant at Christ Memorial Church, who noted that Dennis had taught Sunday school to kindergartners for the past six years. Oh my oh, gosh. Oh my god. I just felt like a part of my soul die. Mm. But I'm also not surprised. You know what? I bet. I am not surprised in the slightest. I bet his fucking sex offender group treatment program was in the basement of that church. Yeah. They were probably all dedicated volunteers at that church. In the kids area. God. (laughs) God. Lowest level of hell. The court also received a letter from Brenda who defended her husband. Oh, no, Brenda. And from Dennis himself, who wrote of his behavior. Quote, sometimes we don't realize a problem until it confronts us face to face. Unquote. You mean the police showing up to tell you that what you did was wrong. Yeah. You've done it multiple times. You have a fucking murder bag. (laughs) That was the it getting confronted face to face. The popo showing up, not you having a moment of (laughs) self-realization. It as in the popo. Let's change that quote. Sometimes we don't realize a problem until the fucking FBI confronts us face to face. Dennis described himself as happily married for 28 years. He said that he had two daughters, one 25 and the other 11. He didn't mention that the older one had been missing for more than a decade. I just want to say... I don't know word for word what he said, but if mm-hmm. homie said, I have two daughters, 125, 111, my dad, um, when's my birthday? How old am I? Yeah. Uh, he could, <laughs> and he, he actually loves me. So him knowing her age, like, <laughs> like that, like, that's just suspicious to me. Like he has tabs on her. That like, he's... you know what I mean? Yeah. That's really funny that you said that because I just saw a TikTok that was a mom panicking at the pediatricians because mm-hmm. they ask for the names and oh. ages of your children. Uh-huh. And I felt so validated because when I had to fly recently on the plane mm. with my three children, they asked at the gate, like names and ages and like dates of birth of my three children. I had to look at the birth certificate. For... I will say, did you bring your birth certificate? Yes, okay, I, I had did. To bring the birth certificate. But I had to, I was so like flustered and like shit. I had to look at the birth certificate for the birthdays of all three of my children when they asked. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. They're going to think I'm a trafficker. <laughs> Those are. <laughs> I'll delete those. Oh. Nobody will hear your kids' In birthdays. case anyone's wondering, Caitlin just perfectly rattled off the birthdays and years of all hey. three of my children. I would have to but reference you the know birth what? certificate. I tried to tell the lady that my son was born August 28th, 2023. Mm. Oh, last wow. week. I, t- I tried to tell her that last week. And, and she's like, so he has not been born yet. 
<laughs> so I may know your children's, but I don't know mine. But it's just this weird, like, I don't know what it is because you know that as a mom, it's inherently something you should know. And so I think you just lay but and have like, anxiety. I know it because I know it. Yeah. So like, it's just one of those basic informations that you can't pull yeah. to the front of your brain. Oh my gosh. It's I'm not shaming so you at bizarre. all. Thank you. No, I, I shamed myself, but I don't even remember, like there was that one year that you were like, isn't Josh's birthday tomorrow? Uh-huh. And I didn't remember that his birthday was like the next day. So well, you- he- you know what? I'll he, give you benefit of the doubt again too. <laughs> he would rather be invisible on That's his birthday true. than That's so. true. He he does not like it being acknowledged, so He's also a June birthday and I hold those bitches really close. Mm, you do. You know. Yes, you guys I re- now remember y'all's birthdays because they are so much closer. So or, many. Yes. Man. <laughs> Anywho, on that tangent, I just find that suspicious. It is suspicious know, that he immediately is like, "Here's some truth well, I'm that offering." He acknowledges his daughter that, like, quote unquote, like people say that they mm-hmm. believe there were there was tension between him and his yeah. adopted daughter. Oh yeah, and then again, she's been missing for over a decade. Yeah, but he's still yeah. like, mm, I don't know. And then this is also that thing that criminals do, where they offer that little truth information Mm -hmm. to make themselves appear more credible while thinking that that's going to let the police like be like oh okay well they're good people while they have huge lies just right under the surface like look at me i'm such a honest detail-oriented upfront person i think dennis here has a report card with a few f's on it though so also every time i see his name pop up in the article i will just want to say it aggressively like dennis 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 penis (laughs) dennis the menace penis god kathy turkanian Learn the details of Dennis Bowman's criminal record after submitting a Freedom of Information Act request. Based on what Detective Pat O'Reilly had told her, it had seemed logical to dig into Bowman's past. Reading for the first time about what Bowman had done to two young women, Tricanian felt a terrible certainty. Quote, When I got his FOIA records, I said, Oh, this man killed my daughter. God. A mother knows. It's an eyes. If we'll Turkan- have to look up his eyes. Yeah. Oh gosh, they're probably dead. No. If Turkanian was right, it would mean that the Racine County Jane Doe wasn't Andrea. That theory made sense only if Andrea were still alive ten years after she disappeared. In 2013, the long-awaited DNA results confirmed it. Turkanian wasn't related to the Jane Doe. She and Koppelman, along with the other amateur sleuths interested in Andrea's story, had thought they were connecting the dots in a single cold case, when all along, they'd been looking at two. Oh, this is crazy. Koppelman and Turkanian were equally yet uniquely obsessive in their approach to detective work. He was thorough and precise, while she was impassioned and incendiary. As Koppelman calculated the next steps in their investigation, Tucanian was too angry to keep silent. Hmm. Mm -hmm. The way she saw it, Bowman needed to be behind bars. 
With his criminal record in hand, she began writing Facebook posts accusing Bowman of being responsible for Andrea's disappearance. She also assembled a Rolodex of... A Rolodex. (laughs) (laughs) Of people who'd known her daughter. Russ Foster, who briefly dated Andrea in high school. Linda Behrens. Behrens? Sounds right to me. The mother of a classmate, Eli Ramos, who rode the school bus with Andrea, and a couple named the Schaefers, who'd grown up with Dennis and Brenda in Muskegon. I think it's Muskegon. Muskegon. I think it's Muskegon. And whose daughter, Mindy, remembered seeing Andrea in the runaway train video. Turkanian learned about Andrea's difficult home life and her anxiety about caring for her baby sister. Wow. Like the parallel between mother and daughter. Yeah. They're so similar. Also, this is such a delicate situation and I am completely team Turkanian here, but this is where we get into some really potentially problematic territory, I think, with the Facebook posting and oh. the accusing because this happens so much where people's... And Dennis Bowman, absolute piece of shit. Like, he oh, yeah. already has a documented record of abusing other women, but it's really dangerous to do what she was doing because we don't know the ending of this case, but let's just speculate because we don't have hard evidence that he did not do this. That would mean that it doesn't make him any less a piece of shit, but it means that there is a violent offender that would potentially get away with it because all of the focus would then be on this one person who might not have actually done it. And it's, I don't at all want to seem like I am speaking negatively of Turkanian because if I was in her position, I would, I'm sure be doing the exact same thing, but this type of thing has happened where law enforcement and the public became zoned in on somebody like, absolutely did this and they actually had nothing to do with it and it caused a lot of damage to an investigation yeah so we we can't be doing that kind of stuff but behind closed doors private research absolutely yes go nuts and turkanian is doing what any desperate mother would do and i cannot blame her at Mm -hmm. all in September 2013, Turkanian and Koppelman met in person at the Missing in Michigan conference. Organized by state police, the conference was designed to raise awareness about and hopefully generate leads in cold cases. Family members and friends of missing persons gathered one Sunday at the Eagle Eye Golf Club in East Lansing, their nervous whispers filling a banquet hall overlooking a green. The schedule included panels, support groups, and even DNA collection, so police could look for matches between families and unidentified remains. Turkanian and Koppelman showed up in custom shirts that read, Find Andrea Bowman. 
The day kicked off with an early morning group therapy session. Turkanian and Koppelman took their seats in a large circle and listened as people introduced themselves. Koppelman scanned the room and was surprised when his eyes landed on familiar faces. He nudged Turkanian, and she looked over. That's Vanessa, he said, and that's Brenda. Oh, Brenda, as in Brenda, wife of Dennis. Hmm. I withheld shit-talking Brenda until absolutely necessary. You have withheld. Hmm. Hmm. Brenda and Vanessa recognized Turkanian, too. The Bowmans were aware of what Turkanian had been saying about Dennis on Facebook. When it was Brenda's turn to introduce herself, she told the room, quote, We have a little situation here, quote. Looking at Turkanian, she added, quote, I can see that you very much resemble Andrea. Brenda tried to keep talking, but Turkanian didn't let her. She'd lain awake so many nights, furious that her daughter's adoptive mother hadn't protected her. Yes, yes. Oh my god. Mm. I'm gonna posture that Turkanian mm. is showing great self-restraint here instead of flipping a table over on that bitch. Oh, man. <laughs> Tell them the truth, Brenda, Turkanian blurted out. Tell them about your husband. The session descended into a dramatic exchange before finally getting back on track. Meanwhile, Koppelman is sitting there with his clipboard and his sketch pencil like... Just like envision like Jerry uh, Springer's like cameraman right now. like. <gasps> oh my god. Afterward, Turkanian hung back as Koppelman approached Brenda, insisting that he only wanted to talk. Though flustered, Brenda seemed eager to explain her side of the story. She insisted that she and Dennis had fully cooperated with police after Andrea's disappearance. She presented a binder full of notes and missing person flyers as proof. She recounted sightings of Andrea. It was clear she still believed that the teenager had run away. According to Koppelman, when he brought up Dennis's criminal record, Brenda replied, quote, I haven't forgotten what he did, but I do forgive him. I take my marriage vows very seriously. Quote. Koppelman thought her words somehow sounded rehearsed, but not disingenuous. Wow. 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 I can guarantee your husband, as you're writing him, He's imagining he's riding Ew, a fucking school bus. Jesus. <laughs> school And it wasn't the magic one. <laughs> Did we hear earlier that Dennis was volunteering at church? Mm-hmm. This is classic, classic evangelical fundamentalist Christian brainwashing that forgiveness means excusing the most heinous of horrible things. And this is historically how the evangelical Christian church, the Catholic church, the whatever the fuck church you want to get into has gotten away with 
unforgivable crimes against humanity Mm -hmm. and children and exactly how on a smaller scale men like Dennis can get away with this type of abuse because when they say, oh, forgive me, wife, forgive me, Jesus, that wife, based on the tenets of evangelical purity culture and marriage and the super messed up hierarchy of Christian evangelical marriage is then obligated to say, he came to me and asked for forgiveness. I must extend to him forgiveness. And I now need to do what I have hammered into my head that God has done, which is cast my sins as far as the East is from the West. That is a literal Bible verse. And I need to be Jesus to my husband. So I need to basically forgive and forget. That is that, you know, you hear that phrase and it's all of that extremely dumbed down, but that basically is the crux of it. And it allows abusers to just, I mean, it is like fucking flies to a pile of sugar water. They thrive in these types of marriages and church settings because they are allowed to get away with this over and over and over again and they know exactly what they're doing yep and sorry to get up on a rant about that because i have very strong feelings in that regard Mm -hmm. but just reading that one sentence i take my marriage vows very seriously i do forgive him that is but everything you just said is exactly that like that train of thought and it shows how much i do not excuse her because like even when you have a level of brainwashing and victimhood herself she was existing in the real world she wasn't kept in a fucking bunker somewhere like she saw the news she had people relentlessly being like this is who your husband is but she was choosing to just repeat these lines instead of seeing the truth and so you it just shows you like just because you forgave him yeah that's not you your forgiveness gave him the green light to continue doing what he did and you cannot rationalize with someone who has chosen to have like some sort of blind faith dogma that because you can't apply logic and reason to it because that they will say like well that's why you have this why you have faith you can't apply logic and reason to it and so they will use that type of excuse again to say well that's why we can forgive because god's ways are higher than our ways and we just have to accept that forgiveness doesn't make sense you know what we're also not the judges so yeah i don't have to (laughs) (laughs) i don't have to dish out the not guilty sentence either (laughs) meanwhile everybody's like fuck's sake shut up and keep reading the story (sighs) oh well Y'all, any sort of religious comments are going to send me into a tailspin. I'm sorry, I just slapped the mic, and that's just what's going <laughs> to The Jerry Springer show continues. Yes. Turkanian had been biting her tongue while Brenda and Koppelman spoke, but now she exploded. Mm. Tell us how you abused, starved, and humiliated her, Brenda, she yelled. Vanessa 
reacting to the verbal attack on her mother, had to be held back by a male attendee. Damn. Quote, you need to be put in a fucking insane asylum. <laughs> wow. Copelman remembered Vanessa saying to Turcanian, the Bowman and Turcanian avoided each other for the rest of the day. Hmm. Brenda and Vanessa Bowman didn't respond to interview requests. Felt like we just read a plot line of a Jerry Springer episode. And that's where we are going to, so sorry, put a pause on this episode for today. We hope you have enjoyed. Well, enjoyed isn't the well, right word. We hope you've been engaged. I hope you guys are team um, Koppelman. Yes. Anti-Shirley. Team Get Fucked Shirley. Mm -hmm. And we will be coming at you next episode with part two and the conclusion of this article, which I am really enjoying reading. And we're also not going to look up anything about. Yeah, don't you guys look up anything. Yes, we're actually going to be recording part two the same day. So we're just going to keep on trucking Feel along. Feel free to download this episode and wait until part two drops and <laughs> listen to them back to back. Yes. Like I would do because I can't wait. Please do. And in the meantime, please Give us a follow on Instagram under Camping is Cancelled. You can find us on patreon.com slash camping is cancelled if you would like to subscribe to the content we are putting out. And we're on the TikTok also at Camping is Cancelled. And we would love it if you would email us camping is cancelled at gmail.com. Any of your personal stories, case recommendations, encounters you have had with the paranormal mm -hmm. embarrassing things that happened to you at summer camp or spooky things survival stories anything that if you've been listening to us now for the last 16 episodes you feel fits with the vibe of our podcast we would love to hear from you and we will be sharing those stories on our friday night frights mm -hmm. which We've already put out our first episode of, and we are going to be continuing with that. So yeah, we would love to hear from you guys. Caitlin, is there anything else? No, I just want to be done telling them bye so we can continue <laughs> reading it for ourselves. Yeah. So this is my excitement for the week. <laughs> our lives are real exciting. Catch you guys next week for part two of the girl in the picture. Bye. Bye.